this film, which was a blacklist script by a writer named Greg Johnson, just spoke to me. I mean, you talk about my cinematic viewpoint being a dark lens. The story just took me in right away. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Hey folks, this is our last interview of the year, and I'm so glad we saved this one for last. Tim Sutton is on the show. Tim is the writer and director of five critically acclaimed feature films including Pavilion, which premiered at South by Southwest and had its New York theatrical premiere as a New York Times critics pick, Memphis, which premiered at Venice and Sundance and was named to the New Yorker magazine's top 10 films of 2014, Dark Knight, which was loosely based on the Aurora Cineplex massacre and premiered at Sundance and Venice in 2016, Donnybrook, starring Jamie Bell, the lovely Margaret Qualley, and Frank Grillo, and Funny Face, starring Cosmo Jarvis and Johnny Lee Miller. Tim's latest film is The Last Son, based on a blacklist script by Greg Johnson. The Last Son stars Sam Worthington of Avatar fame, Heather Graham, and Machine Gun Kelly. This film follows Sam Worthington's character as he attempts to hunt down and kill his own children because of a curse that he believes will result in his own children killing him if he does not stop them first. Shot in Montana during the pandemic, The Last Sun's beautiful light and scenery is juxtaposed with the darkness of the plot. I love westerns, and The Last Sun really stays true to the genre, yet manages to blaze a completely original trail with the story and the cast. In this interview, Tim and I talk about the parallels between his previous films, the dark through lines in his screenplays and films, his approach to casting The Last Sun, how he approaches space and aggressively long takes, as he puts it, in his screenplays and scenes, and the challenges of staying true to your vision as a filmmaker while also trying to obtain funding from investors and film studios. This was a great chat with a filmmaker you're going to hear a lot more about in 2022 and beyond. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Tim Sutton. Tim Sutton, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thanks, Brian. Nice to meet you. I love the uh, love your guitar setup behind you. Right oh, there. thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I try to make it somewhat interesting in the background. <laughs> sure. um, I watched The Last Sun and a couple of other films of yours that really drew me into your world and what a dark world that can be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it can be. I mean, it certainly can be a dark lens, but, but I mean, look at the times. So uh-huh. That's I, so true. Yeah. That's so true. And, and I did not have a chance to watch Dark Knight, but that was my intention. I'll probably watch it this weekend because I know the subject matter of the film and the concept of the film. And with this recent school shooting, I was like, I need to watch this. So, you know, it's the, the never ending conversation. And I made that movie in 2015, 2016. And while we were in the edit, uh, three, three mass shootings happened just while we were editing the film and it hasn't slowed down since. So yeah. it's a horrible conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to be have not only from politicians and, and certainly from the news and journalism, but from art as well. And, and that's what I was trying to do with that film. So it doesn't really take sides. It's not a social issue documentary, but mm-hmm. it is, it's about how we live as much as how, how, how we die. <laughs> 
You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, just reading the subject matter of the film it just really weighed heavily on me. I was like, "Whoa, man, it's su such a prescient time to to film something like that." But uh, let's talk about the last son. Um, sure. So this was, I think, looking at your filmography, one of the first films that you directed that you did not write the screenplay for. That's true. So how did this come to you? Um, let's see. It, you know, in the in the heart of the pandemic, uh, when when the film industry was was majoritively uh, shut down, I got a script sent to me. Um, through anonymous content, which is my management company, um, from a producer named Jid Polhemus, um, who you know has a, a major like action film kind of background. But but this film, which was a blacklist script by a writer named Greg Johnson, just spoke to me. I mean, you talk about kind of the world the world being what it is, and 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 kind of my my uh, cinematic viewpoint being a, a dark lens. The the story just took me in right away. And it felt, even though uh, I had never thought about doing a, a Western um, and, and genre movies in general are not necessarily my, 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 my first step, I just felt like I knew the territory. I knew the characters. I thought it was, it was, it was much uh, about, you know, a search and, and a search for answers and a search for meaning. And during the, the pandemic, that was what we were all going through. We were all trying to figure out like this, the search for meaning. Um, where do we fit in? Where is the world going? What is, what is the meaning of family? What is the meaning of loss and, and all of that. And the script really had it. And, and I loved working with Greg too. Um, it took some pressure off not having to write it, having to come in and kind of then shape it as a director uh, was a new uh, a new kind of world for me and and totally enjoyable and and very collaborative and 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 it was great to have these great bones of the story already in there so then i could kind of uh, visualize it in my own way it's interesting that it came to you in the pandemic and that you're looking at it more broadly almost metaphorically in terms of these concepts or these themes of loss and and the meaning of family because the pandemic for me if i reframe this film maybe sam Worth worthington's character could be this pending doom yeah. you know wh whether it's an an illness that's going to get get you somehow sure. and it's just coming to get you uh, because he does have almost a mystical quality to him that's not not entirely human you know because he's so he almost seems immortal it's a really good way of putting it um when sam and i talked about the character you know, when we were talking about the the uh, it started with the with the kind of the concept of what the character wore, what his costume was. And we went through a lot of different um, a lot of different ideas with uh, with Yvonne Reddy, the costume designer. And what we what we what I was looking for was this what I called a dapper corpse, someone who had already who had his own style, but had already passed over. Like his, his, to me, Sam Worthington's character is is long past living. Mm. He's a ghost. He's a phantom. He's a plague. Right. Um, and that's what gives him this this otherworldly quality is that it's it's not nihilism because he he's past caring. He's right. he, he's on um, he's he's in the spirit. He's connected to the spirit world in a way more as much or more so than he is in the real world. Mm hmm. I see some parallels too with Frank Grillo's character in Donnie Brook, totally. especially with that scene where 
in Donnybrook where Frank Grillo is pointing the gun at the deputy and what are you looking at? Looking at a dead man. Yeah. And uh, the deputy looks back and says, me too. So you, you do have those, those parallels and those characters that are kind of half dead. And yeah. for that reason, because they almost seem like they have nothing to lose right. are, are that much more scary and ominous. They the are because they're not, you know, there's, there's the jump scare type of fear. And then there's the fear of the, of the true unknown of, 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 of not being able to know what this character is going to do next, but knowing it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Anton Chigurh in, in no country or for old men. Ah, um, yeah. But even, but even you go back to like a character like uh, in, in Melville's uh, Le Samurai, Alan Delon, who's, who's, he's this existentialism within the gangster, which, which, you know, makes the gangster kind of come alive to this, this new kind of dark poetry. Right. And, and, and I, I like characters who are, I like building worlds as a filmmaker and within those worlds for, for certain characters, they, they're on their own plane. They, they march to their own drummer. They hear their own voices and those voices are not right and wrong. They're, they're almost beyond. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what allows them to do the most despicable of things, like track down your kids and kill them in the last song. Um, right. Yeah, they have a narrative that's stuck in their head that is immovable, almost like a, a nightmare QAnon figure. <laughs> it's like, totally. You can't argue that w- with Sam Worthington's character that there's no such thing as a curse or his kids are, of course, are never even going to give a shit about him if he just goes on and lives his life. But right. no, he's he's a yeah. he's a believer in something that that is beyond is is beyond fact and fiction. You know, yeah. The darkness of your previous films is pretty striking compared to The Last Sun, mm-hmm. which seems to have a lot of natural light and beautiful landscape, outdoor settings, and I remember one striking scene with Machine Gun Kelly sitting in the and like wheatgrass or a prairie or something. And you just got all this lovely light in that film. So was that intentional or how did you approach the, the cameras, the lenses, the lighting and, uh, and that shoot? Well, I mean, the most important thing is you find the right cinematographer. And I was lucky enough to work with David Gallego, who's this uh, amazing Colombian cinematographer, Uh, his previous work, Embrace of the Serpent, which was nominated for an Oscar. Um, and Birds of Passage are just both beautiful films, but deal with very dark, you know, dark subject matter. But within it's kind of a juxtaposition. It's like Scorsese play, playing a pop song while someone's getting their head beat in. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the juxtaposition of, of light and dark. Right. Um, one thing we really wanted to do is stay true to the genre. Um, you know, we wanted to make a movie that the ghost of John Ford would have watched and been like, all right, I recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means looking at the landscape and feeling the landscape and, and understanding that the time of day matters and that the sun turns into the moon and the moon turns into the sun. And, and, and to use that uh, naturalism to, to our advantage to, to, to show uh, the vastness of, of that, that world, um, but also to, to kind of contrast the, the, the darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when, when uh, uh, Emily Marie Palmer's character is, is by the river, it's, it's, it's the trickling water and the leaves in the, in the yellow leaves in the trees and, her, and the beauty of the sun hitting her face. But when it's Sam walking kind of across the prairie, it's, 
it's hard. It's, you know, it's the sagebrush. It's like every, every step is almost like he's going to fall down and die. So there's these, we tried to take advantage of, 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 of what the, that landscape was on, on both sides on light and dark. As far as camera and lenses go again, um, I'm not a technical, uh, as technical a person, but what's important is, is that there isn't a lot of toys. There are only tools. You know what I mean? Like you see a lot of movies or action films or, or genre films or even Westerns where you see a lot of mechanics of the filmmaking. You see a lots of crane moves or, or uh, uh, like a f- more fanciful direction. And, and to me, it was about setting up a very, very simple, very elegant, very poetic language. But with that, you don't need a lot of lenses. You don't need, you know, a lot of different bodies. We shot with one camera, not two cameras ever. Mm-hmm. And really tried to find what was important in every scene and shoot from, from, from that point of view and move forward. Uh, so to create a simple language that that allowed the, the actors to to become their characters, that allowed the landscape to just be as natural as possible. Yeah, I, th- I see what you mean by the, the simplicity of it or the minimalism of the shoot. Now that I look back on it, like the the Gatlin gun scene where Machine Gun Kelly's at the top of the hill and it's going to shoot down on the soldiers below. Mm-hmm. I could see a, a director really overcomplicating that by you know setting up all kinds of angles, but you, you really had a, a simple view from below looking at the ominous situation that was about to happen, the view from the top and then, you know, the carnage and, and then you're done. Right. That's cool to hear your perspective on that. I think minimalism and re- is realism. Um, and I, I do think like you see the gun from afar, you're about to get shot. Mm-hmm. And then the only other angle you see is you're the gun shooting. It's like a first person shooter game. So you are, in, in, you are complicit in, in, in being shot or shooting and that's it. It's not a, a scene of, of lots of different angles, like you say, or lots of different setups. Um, it is simply about life one minute and death the next minute. And not to give too much away, but there is a scene too, between two key characters where there's a shocking end to uh to one of their lives and it happens very unceremoniously and without i if i remember correctly no music just a minimalist matter of fact approach to life and death right have you ever read ray carver at all speaking of of yeah i I, I love raymond carver and and yeah exactly just the facts you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. not a lot of words just the words that matter you know what I mean? Right. One of my favorite writers is, is Tobias Wolf, who's, who's a lot like Raymond Carver as well. And they both taught at Syracuse at the same time. Right. Um, and it's, it's, there's poetry in, in the, the, but poetry uh, achieved with the least amount of tools, with the least mm-hmm. amount of words. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, Listen, I think sometimes I write a little too flowery and too poetic, and I always try and kind of hone it down and hone it down and hone it down. And with the visuals, it's the same thing. Some of it is born out of necessity. I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of money. There's a certain amount of information I have to convey in this scene. But at the same time, that, 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 allow, that forces you to be economic in your choices and say, what is the essential thing I need from this scene? And what is the essential angle that will tell what I want to, uh, the, the information I want to give to the audience? Nothing more, nothing less. And then move on. Nice. 
I understand you're adapting a Tobias Wolf book into a, a movie. Is that right? Yeah, I've been. Uh, I have adapted uh, the Chain, which is a, a wonderful short story that I've just had in my back pocket for a long time, and that is with David Lancaster, who I did Donnie Brook with. Um, just kind, you know, after Donnie Brook came out, it was it, it was such a uh, uh, a dark movie that. The chain is is dark as well, but we're we're still in the process of trying to find a slightly different tone, not quite as as nihilistic as as what has come before. It's the same thing with um, the Last Sun. The Last Sun, yeah, on paper is a very dark movie, but as you pointed out, it's a beautiful movie, and it's also it's it's a genre movie. It it stays true to the genre, and it does it yeah. as entertaining as as any as as anything else. You know, it's not. It's not about doom and gloom. It is about, um, you know, it's a Western and it's an epic. And it's also very intimate about about people searching for searching for themselves, you know. Yeah, I love Westerns. Unforgiven, I think, is my favorite. Um, I like Westerns, too. I like the Misfits, even though it's not really a, a, a true Western. Um, I, I, I do like Westerns, although I never thought for the life of me I was ever going to make one. You know, <laughs> It's very interesting how there's this kind of slew of there's, there's this wave right now of Westerns starting with like news, news, news of the world with Tom Hanks and the Netflix just released that big Western with Idris Elba and uh, a movie called old Henry that played at Venice. And um, it seems like there's a little bit of a wave, which is bizarre that there's still interest, but um I just never thought I'd, I'd, I'd get the chance. So when I did get the chance and, and the timing was right, it was like, all right, well, let's make Like I said, like, let's make John Ford kind of proud, but, yeah. stay, but, you know, stay true to stay true to what I, what I think about things at the same time. How did you approach firearm safety on set? I mean, it's, it's, it was the, not the first time I'd used guns, but the, the first time that guns had played a, a constant part in the film. Um, our armor was incredibly experienced. Uh, he not only had done numerous movies, but he is big in the reenactment world out in the Dakotas, mm -hmm. Civil War reenactments, all that kind of stuff, which is a lot of gunplay. And so that we really felt safe with him. Um, you know, it's a small film and, and, and it's hard not to cut corners, but in the firearms, uh, and, and the firearms and ours, they were always tested. The armor was always uh, on. Uh, and we were, we did not cut corners in that department. I mean, I had to come up with, I had, at one point I had to cut a day out of the shoot. Okay, got it. Because we got snowed in and, and, and I have to make cho uh, choices like that. But I never felt like I was putting anyone in danger because of the experience and because of the, the process. It's really scary uh, what has happened. And I, I do feel like even though I had a good experience with my crew and my film, I'll never work with real firearms again. Mm, uh, really? I, I, yeah, I've, I've made that pledge. I'll use, I'll, I'll use fake guns. They can make fake guns. A lot of the stuff that, we, uh, that you experienced in The Last Sun, um, the, the actual shooting and the smoke and the fire uh, are done in post. And really? that, that technology is just going to get better. I like the way that the blanks worked in terms of giving it energy and giving, you know, really giving it purpose. But uh, a movie is a movie and, and lives are lives and it's not worth the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Smart move. That's sure. just so tragic. What happened in New Mexico? Awful. 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 Where did you shoot? 
We shot in Montana. We actually shot on the original Marlboro Ranch, where they shot the Marlboro Man photographs and commercials. Um, this gorgeous, gorgeous piece of land, not far from Livingston, Montana, which is really close to Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. But you look in one each direction you look at is a different mountain range where we were. So it was it was just so gorgeous. And I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. So to get out of my apartment and get out into the mountains for a couple of months during the pandemic was. Oh, yeah. Well, was, you guys were really locked down. I mean, yes. Yeah. And, that, and that's why that's why it worked. That's why it was safe. We were all yeah. staying on the ranch. Everyone who came to the ranch had to have a negative uh, a negative test. There was no vaccinations at the time. Um, ever, you know, obviously mask wearing was mandatory except for the, for the actors. Yeah. Um, but we were all kind of isolated together. We we're all in, we we're all in quarantine together. Uh, and, and that's why it worked. I think. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. I want to talk about casting a little bit because Machine Gun Kelly took me by surprise, maybe because he's a a musician who's transitioned into acting. But after seeing the film, I was like, wow, that is a very striking figure. I mean, movie star. Yeah. Um, presence on camera. So what were your thoughts going in? Had you worked with Machine Gun Kelly before and, and why him? Uh, I hadn't worked with him before, although we already made, we've made another movie together that I'm, I'm uh, getting close to final cut on that we've done since then. Um, so I, I do like working with him. I think he's, I think he's a star. I think he has presence. I think, um, I think actors often, you know, there are great actors and then there are actors who think they're great. And I think a lot of the times these guys who are uh, musicians, they're used to performance. Mm. They're used to playing a role, even if they're playing themselves, they're used to the camera on them or eyes on them. And they know how to live in front of that, that setting. So he was definitely one of those people who, you know, like he, he's natural in front of the camera because it's, he's used to it and, and, and has this innate skill to disregard the camera, to not, to not think about the camera, to just live on screen. Right. Um, It's also like the character's punk rock and his character, Cal is not just a cowboy. He's punk rock. He's chaos. He's, you know, he's, he's anarchy. And, Mm. you know, that's, that's, Machine Gun Kelly's persona. I mean, yeah. I think Colson is also a very thoughtful, uh, passionate, intelligent actor and and just person in general. And so he's not just he's not just give me the gun, let me go out and do it. He really was searching for his father and searching for a way to survive at the same time. And Sam Worthington, even though he is obviously a fantastic actor he's more of a chameleon than a movie star. And I mean that in the absolute best way. Like if I had watched this film without looking at the cast beforehand, I would never know that that was Sam Worthington. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ever. And it's not just because of the beard and the wardrobe. That guy is very hard to pin down and, and recognize for some reason. And I don't know if that's a talent or something you're born with, but what were you thinking with that casting choice? 
Well, I I came on after Sam was already cast, and I you know I feel lucky in in that case. We were both at Anonymous Content, so there was a good connection there. But um, you know, I think I think Sam is one of those guys who could have been a huge movie star, but decided to be an actor instead. Uh, okay. And I think um, he's very interested now in working with great actors, working with strong directors, and diving into roles rather than you know. Listen, he got really famous doing Avatar, but he does Avatar because he wants to work with Jim Cameron and he wants to work on the cutting edge. And yeah. that is what Jim Cameron does constantly. Um, so, uh, he, you know, he chooses roles because, OK, I get to act across from Harvey Keitel. Done. That's what I want to do. I can learn from him. And so he brings this this kind of real thespians uh, viewpoint now. Yeah. And I think that's what makes him so uh, so watchable and so interesting is because he is the character he is purely method he is not in it just for the money he is not in it for stardom he is in it to find himself through the character and you know a lot of people say that but you see in the movie like sam is doing that he, he doesn't care if he's you know the first one shot out for example he doesn't care that he's his face is, he gets the close-up first he cares about the character's truth and, uh, and, and it was inspiring. And, and, you know, once you get that from your lead actor, everyone gets in line, you know, once they see Sam's commitment, everyone from the PAs to the other actors, to, to the producers, to the grips, everybody sees what he's doing and they're like, okay, I'm going to dig in. Yeah. I better get my shit together. Cause I don't exactly. want to look bad next to this guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if he's going for it like this, then I can do my job. You know, I thought it was an interesting choice to, have his voice crack and be so minimalist i mean meek and like you're saying on the way out almost yeah went one foot in the grave but he he really had a voice that was shocking to hear in the first couple of scenes like you're, you're listening going what is he saying yeah and that had to be a conscious choice that he made for his character that is absolutely a choice he made this character was written a little bit more a little bit more archetypal in terms of like the bad guy, you know, the villain. And I think Sam played it. He's not a villain. He's a ghost. You know, the reason that he chose to do his voice like that was because here's a guy who goes around the prairie and the mountains and he's been cursed for years and years and years. He's done some horrible things. He's on his own. He doesn't talk to people. He could go let, I can imagine him going months without opening his mouth and, and saying anything to anyone. So that voice changes, you know, the isolation changes you. And that's what Sam wanted to find with that. Mm, okay. And I think, yeah. I think it, to me, it's fascinating because again, it's like, he's not stepping, he's not stepping closer to the audience. He's almost shying away from the audience. And I find that really interesting in, 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 you know, the typical main, you know, the main bad guy, mm -hmm. he's, he's not in the forefront. He's in the corner. And that, that to me makes him even scarier. And his voice is a part of that. Yeah. Was Heather Graham attached before you got involved? Heather Graham was attached. Uh, she had made a movie with one of the producers beforehand. And that, you know, again, felt super lucky just to, to work with her. I mean, she's been, she's worked with a couple of my favorite director, directors with Gus Van Sant and Paul Thomas Anderson. And she's, you know, she's, the thing about Heather is that she's so, so, so committed to her character um, that, you know, 
she kept off camera talking about talking to me um, about Cal, about the character, about Cal, about Cal. And she would just start crying in the middle of these conversations about just what her character feels for her, you know, yeah. abandoning her son. Um, and it was fascinating because it was really like we were talking about a real life person, like her real son, and 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 she abandoned him and she'd be in tears, but we were just in my in her dressing room, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so her commitment was surprising to me. Um, but uh I loved working with her, you know, she's I think she was great for the role, and she really, just like Sam did, she really pulled Colson out. Like she really drew him out. So, uh, you know, when, when you get on set and Sam is doing what he's doing and Heather's doing what she, what she's doing, it made Colson realize like, Oh, okay. Like this isn't just an action film. Like this is, we're really, I'm being pushed and I'm, and he likes that. And, and he rose to the occasion, but it was someone with the, you know, kind of experience of, of Heather that was necessary for mm-hmm. to, to do that. I thought Thomas Jane did a great job too. TJ's. Yeah. He's a great actor. I looked at him. I was like, oh, another Sam Worthington moment where I'm looking at him going, I recognize him from something. And I, I realized it was hung, which is like the most opposite role yeah. that you can have for, yeah. for what he was playing in this movie, but he did a great job. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think his, his character is, you know, you have the, you have Sam against Colson and you have this kind of big thing, but really kind of the triangle in that is, is Solomon is, is TJ's character. And I think it had to be, it was hard because it had to be noble, but it had to be someone who was, who, who, you know, had, had been, had been, you know, had, was carrying around this hurt, was carrying around this kind of secret history with, with Heather and with his own past. Um, so it was, it was, and it, but also it couldn't, it had to, it had to push the two main character story even further rather than kind of drag away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he does a really good job with it. And, and um, you know, he, he's a wild man, you know, like I liked working with him too. He's a very different actor from, from Sam Worthington, but, but one that you have to kind of, you have to, you have to go for the ride or he's going to just run wild, you know? So I'd like to talk about your screenwriting process because after watching funny face, I watched that as well. I'm noticing a lot of space in your movies. Just yeah. do you write that space in? I, I look at, you know, I, I have screenplays that you know, are, are in progress and I always default to, you know, action or, or dialogue, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you have some parts in films where for instance in funny face where there's just long scenes where you're very comfortable with the pause with the Mm -hmm. space Mm -hmm. of you know two people just walking down the sidewalk and if i was a filmmaker i might be self-conscious about it like is this too long but Mm -hmm. it works and and it's powerful and compelling but how do you approach that as a screenwriter because your screenplay has to be read by other people and be funded and you know like so are you expecting the reader to see that space on the page and understand what it's going to do? I think I am. Listen, funny face is a very different movie from Donnybrook, for example, Mm -hmm. but there is, but, but if you think about it, there are moments in both that are these long kind of um, aggressively long takes or passively long takes, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I do write that in. I don't say, 
and they walk down the street for five minutes saying nothing, or they sit on a bench for nothing. But I'll talk about them sitting on the bench, not needing to talk. Mm. And a red flag flutters in the distance and the sound of a kid down by the beach. And then he asks that, and then he looks at her and looks away. Like there, there are those moments that are baked in to kind of give this feeling of really a feeling of authenticity. When you're on a bench with a girl that you kind of like, and you're, and you're having a snack together and you're just sharing the space together, it's, it, you want it to last forever. Mm, you know, yeah. you want to take your time with it. And that's the natural thing. Or you're too nervous to say anything, you know? Um, at the same time in Donnybrook, I think about the long take with Frank uh, Grillo's character hitting, uh, kind of beating on Margaret Qualley's character in the car. That, what I want from that is if I cut, and the producers wanted me to cut at a certain point, but if I cut away or cut to a close-up or something, then you're no longer sitting in the car. You're no longer witness. So instead, that long take, you are sitting in the car and you are waiting and you are waiting and you know it's not going to be good. And then he hits her and you have to sit in the back car, in the back seat of the car, and you have to wait. And he hits her again. And you're just like, what, what? You're, impl- you're there. Mm-hmm. And if you cut, if you make it a little bit smoother, a little bit easier, um, it takes away, the, it takes away the, the, the impact. You know, it might make it more uncomfortable. It takes away the impact. I do write those in. I don't write them in so that they so that they disturb the financing, the idea of a financer reading the script and being like, wow, there's a real I I really get the story. It really moves. But anyone who's getting involved with me for the most part knows, you know, that that part of my cinematic language is 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 the the wondering about things and is the poetry about things and. And when you're, when you're walking, like when Sam is walking through the prairie after he's been in the fight uh, with the Native American, it's a four minute shot, man. And, and I refuse to cut that because it's endless. He has to walk for, I mean, four minutes, he has to walk for days to get where he's going to get. And so at first you're like, wow, he's walking. And then you're like, wow, he's walking. The shot's going on a long time. And if you go long enough, then you stop thinking about the time and you're walking with him and you're like, God, I'm exhausted. God, how is he making it? God, how right. is he? it becomes experiential, not just a viewing experience, but it truly physically experiential. And I do put that in the screenplays. I try and I, I try, try and convince collaborators of why it's important to do that. But at the same time, you know, I try and make things accessible to, to, to the industry as well. So when they read it, they want to make it. Mm-hmm. Like funny face was made for less than a million dollars. I knew nobody was going to, you know, put $5 million into that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, but so that was made with, with less pressure to, to worry about what the financers thought they were on board. Yeah. That scene with Frank and uh, Margaret in the car. When I look back on it, it was completely immersive and what made it so freaky or so scary and heavy was that you can hear the breathing you know, you can hear the sort of the rapid breathing and the, and the muttering under his breath of whatever he's saying that maybe is not in the script. And you've got this very intense moment that almost seems like you're, you're a fly on the wall. in In other words, you know, like you're violating their privacy by being there and, but you're forced to watch it. Right. Um, but that's interesting that you're you're that intentional in your screenplays. Absolutely, it translates that way. I'd love to see one of your screenplays. Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to share for sure. Okay, cool. 
So I'd like to know as an indie filmmaker about the business currently, you know, present day indie film in terms of financing. I know that 10% has to be added to the budget now for pandemic protocols and that type of thing. What are the challenges that you're facing today, getting funding and making the films that you want to make? Well, I mean, I, I feel at this point pretty lucky. I've, I've made seven films um, and, and they, they've all been appropriately budget, budgeted. I wish I had more for some. And, and certainly, you know, you, you have to make choices, but I, I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones. I, get, I do get financed. Um, the, the issue is, is less in the financing, although financing is very difficult if you want to make challenging films or if you want to make, uh, you know, original films, which is what I want to do and what I'm trying to do. Um, it's, who, it's what is the audience now for a film? You know what I mean? So the idea is, is you can make something like Funny Face. Funny Face I got made and I really wanted to make it. And everyone was like, oh, is it a Lovers on the Run movie? I was like, yeah. And they're like, is it a revenge film? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, it's kind of the New York genre. I'm like, yup. Like I, I made that to make because I'm interested in making specific kind of stories come alive. That movie, you know, pr premiered at Berlin and then went away. You know, it got a very, very tiny distribution deal. It, it, it did not play theatrically. It, uh, you know, it had, it has really struggled to find an audience because the glut of content that's on Netflix, that's on all the streamers. Right. right? Um, so it, it's very hard to find that audience. There are, there are of course people who are interested in, they find it and they, they find a way to see things, but Netflix is spending billions of dollars on Netflix movies. There are a few Netflix movies that are good. Many Netflix movies are kind of seem like they're in the Netflix genre of, of you watch for about 20 minutes and then you look for something else on Netflix. Um, so I, Twitter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I do think, and theatrically it's becoming, you know, even harder. It was always hard. Then it got harder. Then with the pandemic, it's become very, very difficult. So theatrically you might get some screens, which is great, but it's really about, you know, how do you, how do you make something original, but how, how do you, how do you get the the streamers to take that original content let it be original and also promote it at the same time i find that that's the real issue with indie indie film right now i think you can go out and you can make a film for 40 grand or you can make a film for 40 million there's money in both those areas if if you're lucky and if you work hard it's just a matter of like how do you how do you make something that finds an audience in a way that is um meaningful Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, though, when you look at how consumers consume content and what they're looking for. I think they're looking for very easy to digest, easy to understand categories of content. Like this is a Western. This is a romance. You know, I, I'm looking for and that's the way Netflix breaks it down. Yeah, it's a column. Genre. They're, they're columns. Yeah. And if your film doesn't neatly fit into those categories and is a little more challenging as you say yeah i can see the the problem with finding an audience which is a shame because you know i'm, I'm seeing some themes in your films that are really compelling i mean i think most of the characters that you write into screenplays and put onto screen are broken they're they're very broken people mm -hmm. and and those are the types of people that 
I am, it's just like magnetic for me. I, I want to see where they're going. I want to see if there's a journey that results in them finding their way through that darkness. Right. And then you also like in funny face, you have a confluence of characters that you would never expect to meet up and be involved with each other. Right. Like this young um, Muslim girl and, and then Cosmo Jarvis, who's yeah. He's a fascinating character in and of himself. I mean, yeah, he's a spectacular actor. Yeah, amazing yeah. work. So, what is next for Tim Sutton? I, I noticed in your filmography, there's a couple of upcoming projects. One I think you just mentioned about Machine Gun Kelly is already in the can and it's in post. Yep, that me, is uh, that's that's a, mo- uh, a movie I'm very excited about, and and uh, Colson as well. Um, that we shot in LA this summer and it's about the, the last few days of a, a rock star's life. Um, mm. so it, it has a meta aspect to it that is, uh, kind of goes into this gray area of, of, am I watching machine gun Kelly? Am I watching a fictional character? Am I watching both? Um, and it's, it's, again, it's one of those movies that doesn't fall in the perfect columns, but is a very, very interesting movie about someone who, who, you know, in a way how, how everything gets in the way of the creative process, all of the modern world, whether it's parenthood, whether it's technology, whether it's social media, whether it's the music industry, whether it's celebrity, whatever it is, all this person wants to do is make music and finish this album, but everything gets in the way. Addiction, all these different things get in the way mm-hmm. of that creative process. That'll come out sometime, you know, in, in 2022. Uh, we're looking for a premiere first uh, to figure out where to premiere it and, and of course, finish finish the, the post-production process. I think can is still taking applications. They are, they are <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no. Uh, so the chain, when do you start shooting on that? The chain is still in development. Uh, there's no plan for a shoot on that. <laughs> and, uh, I'm currently writing, uh, writing two different projects. One is kind of influence. One is what I'm kind of pitching as my last dark movie for a long time. It's, uh, it's a little mix of uh, movies like La Femme Nikita and Clockwork Orange uh, about um, a very violent person who is cured of that violence, but but then has to survive in a very violent world. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm also uh, I'm uh, I'm in the process of optioning an article about uh, about phantom debt, about debt collectors who 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 co- try and collect debts that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Right? through intimidation and about how one person stands up to these debt collectors. And, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a dark comic thriller. Hmm. You want to go in that direction. Yeah. Fascinating. So if you could tell my listeners where they can see the last sun and when. Sure. The last sun comes out uh, December 10th. It's playing a limited theatrical run, but it'll be on Apple TV uh, immediately. And, and then it'll be on lots of different digital platforms uh, on demand uh, on December 10th. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend that they go out and check out that film. It's, it's a great genre film, but it also transcends the genre. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Tim. Thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. Take it easy. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. 
And as always, go find your dream path. 